coming up, the bursts of energy from space that had scientists shaking their heads in disbelief. When I first heard about the phenomena, I was pretty skeptical that they weren't just some radio communication. And treating the sick patient that is the PhD system. It's one thing to treat somebody for a single acute lesion, but to treat somebody for a variety of chronic diseases at one time, it's hard. Plus, tracking down the universe's huge amount of missing matter. This is The Nature Podcast for December the 3rd, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Shamini Bundell. Eight years ago, astronomers scouring through their data saw a very strange signal, one that they're only now beginning to understand. Nature reporter Lizzie Gibney investigates. In 2007, the Parks Observatory in Australia discovered a single, very bright flash of radio waves in their data. These lit up the telescope but were gone in the blink of an eye. For a long time, researchers figured this burst of radio waves was just a blip, a signal caused by a faulty instrument or by something boringly close to home, like a satellite. By 2013, a few more similar bursts had trickled in, but all from the same telescope. When I first heard about the phenomena, I was pretty skeptical that they weren't just some radio communication. That's Kiyoshi Masui, an astronomer at the University of British Columbia. His scepticism was justified because sometimes exciting signals do turn out to have mundane explanations. Once, researchers at the Parks Observatory traced the source of some other radio bursts to the opening of their kitchen microwave. When last year a second telescope reported seeing the flashes, known as fast radio bursts, any remaining scepticism quickly fell away. Researchers, including Masui, are now racing to find more examples to help them figure out the cause of these bursts. I asked Masui, what is it about the signals which makes them so unusual? So a fast radio burst um, looks very much like a pulsar, except you see it once and you never, ever see it again. There have been 15 of them discovered now, and we've followed up these uh, the locations where we saw them uh, and have never seen a repeated event. So it's really, really puzzling what that, um, what that could be. And so we've got these milliseconds, so very, very short bursts of radio wave radiation. Um, what are some of the possible explanations then that people have come up with to explain them? So it's still a very wide open question. So until, um, until maybe this year, there were more explanations for what fast radio bursts could be than there were um, observations of fast radio bursts. Uh, there's a couple different interpretations. Um, one of the most popular is if there's a star quake, sort of like an earthquake on Earth, but a star quake in the crust of a neutron star, that that might emit uh, a very fast and very bright burst of radio energy. Um, so that's, that's one of the more popular uh, explanations, um, but there's many. So nobody said it's aliens yet then? <laughs> uh, oh, you know, lots of people have said they're aliens, but, um, but uh, that's not taken that seriously. And so how did you go about uh, spotting the particular fast radio burst that you've been studying? So we um, collected our data for a completely different purpose, um, but we just happened to have a large data set. Uh, and uh, fast radio bursts started becoming a, a popular topic and an interesting topic. Uh, so we decided to search our data, and this spat out uh, actually 6,000 possible uh, candidates. But when we actually looked at most of them, it turned out to be uh, just uh, radio interference from communications on Earth. But there was this one burst that, um, that was pretty convincingly not a communication signal. Uh, and and looked like a fast radio burst. And what have you been able to learn about that one signal then that you've seen? 
So one thing, one advantage we had is that we had polarization information in our data. So we were able to, um, to use that. So uh, we now know that, uh, that the radiation from the burst had to pass through a magnetized region of space before it came to us. The other big thing we noticed uh, is that as the signal from the burst travels to Earth from the source, uh, it can be uh, sort of lensed by plasma. And we were able to use this scattering, this lensing information, to determine that the source of the burst is actually in a pretty big cloud of, uh, of plasma. Um, we don't really know what that cloud is. It could be like a star-forming nebula, or it could be a supernova remnant. Um, but that at least is a clue about the environment of where the, the burst came from. And we've said it's a short, bright flash, but just how energetic is it? It's as much energy as the sun puts out in 10,000 years, put out in one millisecond. So we know it's in a cloud of plasma and we know the signal travels through a magnetic field. Does this help us to rule out some of the possible candidates, some of the possible explanations for what these bursts are? Uh, yeah, so um, things that are in a lot of plasma, uh, and, and uh, they, they tend to be younger objects. Uh, so the t types of neutron stars that tend to be very young are the types of neutron stars that we think have these starquakes. Uh, and so this sort of favors that, that starquake hypothesis. Um, it's also the type of neutron star that could conceivably collapse into a black hole uh, and release a big burst of radio energy. So if you had to put your money on one of these explanations, which would it be? So I think it's still very wide open what these are, but if I, you made me put money on it, um, I would go with uh, the neutron star starquakes. Um, but, but I think it's still, still uh, a pretty risky bet. Does it feel like you're, um, you're one of the pioneers then at the vanguard of these new mysterious signals that we're getting? A bit like when, you know, Jocelyn Bell-Bennell first saw pulsars and everyone thought that, that, that her group were just seeing something crazy that wasn't actually a real signal. I would never compare myself to um, Jocelyn Bell, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I, know I like to think that we're learning something new. Uh, if you're not learning something new, then you're not, doing, um, you're not doing science. So all scientists are at the vanguard of something in their own way. But yeah, no, I feel very lucky to be at this in, in this field at this exciting time. That was Kiyoshi Masui of the University of British Columbia talking to Lizzie Gibney about the mysterious phenomenon of fast radio bursts. You can find out more from nature.com forward slash nature where we have the paper. Plus, Lizzie's written a news piece on this story that you can read at nature.com forward slash news. Coming up later in the show, a second cosmological mystery, this time in the form of missing matter. But before that, almost every scientist starts out their career in the same way, by doing a PhD. But is the doctoral system broken? Reporter Julie Gould has been picking apart the PhD to see if there's a way of putting it back together again. There are a lot more people who want to work in science than there are jobs to go around. In the last decade, the number of students graduating with biological or biomedical science PhDs jumped by 50%. But the academic job market didn't expand to fit. The harsh truth is that PhD students cannot all become professors. We're working with a system that's been functional for about 50 years and shows some signs of wear and tear. This is Harold Varmus. He is a professor at Weill Cornell Medicine and the New York Genome Centre. But he's also one of a group of people leading the charge to fix the PhD system. Most programs have some way of introducing people to other ways of using a biomedical research training program that is in industry or in policy or in other areas. 
still the, the mantra is that if you're meeting the goals of this program, you're going to end up being like your mentor. In reality, only 10% of biology PhDs will make it to a tenure-track position within six years of graduating. Something has to change, says Varmus. And not surprisingly, PhD students the world over agree with him. Gary McDowell got his PhD in biochemistry eight years ago. He and several other early career scientists, frustrated with the system, have started a group called Future of Research. One of the problems they've diagnosed is a lack of definition of the PhD, says McDowell, who is now a postdoc at Tufts University in Boston, Massachusetts. Training, training for graduate students is sort of a, quite a nebulous thing and often done as a, I feel like a, a box-checking exercise in a lot of cases. And it is not clear to me exactly what the goals of a PhD are. Whether it's to train people who think scientifically or as pure academics. The lack of definition also stretches to how to determine whether someone has successfully earned a PhD and even how long a PhD should be. And so with this lack of definition, it becomes a position where they are doing a lot of the teaching and the research, but not necessarily getting the training that they need and the exposure to potential other careers other than academia that, to be honest, most of them are going to end up in. So maybe a little focus on alternative careers would help, some training sessions maybe. But it won't be that easy, Farmer says, to change a whole system in small bites, just like treating a patient with multiple illnesses. A lot of things are wrong, and that makes therapy very difficult because it's one thing to treat somebody for a single acute lesion, but to treat somebody for a variety of chronic diseases at one time, it's hard because something you try to do to treat one is going to end up being toxic or will not help you with another condition. And so it's very hard to get recommendations on the table. And then there's the deeper problem, the culture within academia. At a scientific meeting, McDowell heard some surprising advice. I, I was told I should lie and tell them everything's great. What was your response? I wasn't surprised to hear it. Because I have essentially heard that message before, but it was the, the frankness with which it was said. And I think this is a, a perverse idea to, that you would let people come into the system and not give them an idea of what the reality is before. Because at the same time, I've also had PIs say to me, oh, it's terrible, I have these graduate students and they're in their fourth year and they're so disheartened and they're so miserable. And so it, it's actually sort of strengthened my resolve to talk about these issues more. And, you know, the, the solution to this is we need to educate people about what they can do and then try to train them properly so that they're not miserable when they're doing bench work, even if they don't necessarily want to continue doing that. This way, they could see bench work as a means to an end, even if it doesn't suit them. Farmers believes that the atmosphere could be changed by designing new types of graduate education. I think everybody should start by getting high-level basic coursework in the exciting areas of medical research. But... I think at that point, there should be a lot of pathways. Some of them certainly would be masters. We might have some different kinds of PhDs. I've seen some interesting proposals for getting a some doctorate in science that uh, has larger components of policy and social science and other things and uh, has less emphasis on the research project. It might be just a different degree. A doctorate in science is not a, a traditional PhD. 
McDowell agrees that a step away from the bench could be useful for everyone, even those who want to stay in pure science. The training that a PhD would hopefully get would allow protected time for training that could be used for anything. And if the trainee, of course, wants to go into academia, then of course that time could be used for things like learning how to write papers, how to write grants, how to manage labs, how to manage finances, thinking about budgeting for grants and this kind of thing. There are too many PhD students for the amount of academic jobs. But if PhD training can be widened so that people leave with a broader scientific background that can be applied to many different careers, then there can never be too many PhDs. That was Julie Gould, who was speaking with Gary McDowell and Harold Varmus. And make sure you check out Julie's feature this week over at nature.com forward slash news. Later on in the news chat, we catch a glimpse of the first few days of the Paris climate talks. But first, it's time for the research highlights with Kerry Smith. In pigeons, it's the fastest flyers that lead the flock, even though they may not be the best at finding their way. A study of GPS-tagged pigeons shows that birds that flew faster alone were more likely to become flock leaders. Those in pole position were then quicker to learn, adjusting their flight path faster than followers did. The team suggests that, for pigeons at least, where a bird flies in the flock can affect how it learns, and that leadership is based on individual qualities rather than the group deciding what's best. That study is in current biology. Bees are crucial pollinators for lots of crops, but they're not the only insects that help out. Flies, beetles, moths and ants could be almost as important as their bee friends. Data from field studies reveal that up to half of all visits to crop flowers were from insects that weren't bees. They weren't as good at pollinating as bees were, but they made up for it in enthusiasm because of the amount they visited. Some crops do depend on bees, like coffee and grapefruit, but others, like mangoes, relied almost entirely on not bees. The journal PNAS has more. Physicists love a good mystery. And what could be more mysterious than the universe hiding half of all regular matter? Excluding mysterious dark matter, most of the mass of regular matter is made of baryons. Baryons are particles made up of three quarks. This includes the protons and neutrons which make up the nuclei of every single atom. So it's a bit concerning that for a long time, physicists have been unsure where half the universe's baryons have been hiding. Now though, research led by Dominique Eckert has been searching for these baryons in an unusual place. The cosmic filaments that link together clusters of galaxies across immense scales. But before we get to that, Dominique explained just how we knew that the baryons were missing in the first place. The baryons, they are created during the Big Bang. And they should not have disappeared since the Big Bang. Then we should expect to see the same fraction of baryons in, in our local universe than was what was created originally in the Big Bang. So we, we observe what we call the cosmic microwave background, which is some kind of echo from the Big Bang. And by looking at this cosmic microwave background, we can estimate how many baryons we have, how, many, how much ordinary matter we have in the, in the current universe. So the cosmic microwave background tells us how many baryons there ought to be. What number do we get out of that? 
So the number we get is that matter in total is something like 30% of the energy content of the universe. And among this, only 4.5% is made out of baryons. The rest being what we call dark matter, which is a type of matter that we still don't know. So that's the number we get from looking at the cosmic microwave background radiation, but that isn't the number that until recently we've actually seen in the universe. So indeed, when we make a census of everything we see in the local universe, we fall short of that number by about a factor of two. So essentially, all the matter that we see in in our universe is only half of what there is in total in the universe. So where might all these missing baryons be hiding? So on the large scales, we see that the distribution of galaxies is not random. It's organized along a web that is somehow similar to neural networks with knots and filaments. And the knots of this cosmic web would be galaxy clusters. And connecting those galaxy clusters, we see regions of enhanced density. And this is what we call cosmic filaments. We expect that these missing variants are lying in the filaments of the cosmic web. So that's where one might expect these baryons to be based on simulation. What did you actually do in this study to try and test that hypothesis? It's been very hard up to now to observe these uh, cosmic filaments. It's been 15, 20 years that we've, astronomers have been trying to observe them. And we were lucky in a sense because the observation that we obtained was significantly more sensitive than what had been observed up to now. So what we've done was to observe one of these galaxy clusters, and uh, we we have seen three stru- three of these filaments, and we think that the the matter that we are seeing inside these filaments is should be the missing baryons. In this paper, you actually give an estimate for the amount of baryons in these filaments. How do you count the number of baryons in something like this? So what we do is we use gravitational lensing. So gravitational lensing is the bending of light by the presence of mass. So by, by, by observing this effect, we are able to measure how much mass there is in this region. And then when we observe, so in X-rays, what we observe is gas that has very high temperatures, uh, essentially beyond a million degrees. So by essentially counting the number of photons that we observe coming from these regions, we can estimate how much gas there is. So we can reconstruct the fraction of baryons inside these structures. Does your observation of these uh, cosmic filaments now solve this mystery of missing baryons? So it, it, does, it does solve them when locally, meaning when we look at these regions in particular, but it's a long way until we can extrapolate that to the universe as a whole. That was Dominique Eckert from the University of Geneva's Department of Astronomy. That paper's over at nature.com forward slash nature. And we have a video about the cosmic web called Laniakea, our home supercluster. Search for it on youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Time now for the news chat, and Noah Baker has been catching up with reporter Jeff Tollefson from the heart of the Paris climate talks. 
We're sitting here in the media centre at COP21 in Paris. It's unusually quiet at the moment. There's been a bit of a lull towards the end of Tuesday. And I'm sitting here with Jeff Tollefson. Now, Jeff, how long have you been here and what's it been like so far? Uh, I've been here just over 24 hours. Um, I arrived the afternoon uh, in the afternoon yesterday um, in the midst of a, a, a blizzard of news with more than 150 global leaders. Um, it was madness yesterday. The madness kind of continued today a little bit, um, but now the leaders have made their way out for the most part, um, and the negotiations are just kind of getting started in earnest. And you mentioned the leaders. This is something that's unusual or peculiar to this COP. That's right. Um, in the past, when we have had leaders, if you go back to Copenhagen in 2009, uh, the leaders came in at the very end, and the idea was that the negotiators would make as much progress as they could, and then the leaders would come in at the end and negotiate the remaining details. Here, they've flipped that on its head. The goal is to bring in the leaders early on, create momentum, hopefully give uh, the negotiators directions on what they need to get done, and then they can get to work and finish the deal. And do we think this is going to work as a tactic? Entirely unclear. There are a lot of people who think maybe, uh, maybe it's good to get some symbolism at the very beginning for these leaders to come in and uh, send their negotiators a message. Um, some people are concerned it'll distract um, from, from the work that's at hand. Yesterday, it's not clear that very much got done in terms of negotiating. Um, so we will see toward the end of the week or toward the end of next week how it goes. Now, of course, there's a lot to discuss over the course of the next two weeks. Um, and today, one of the early focuses was on forestry. Yeah, so uh, deforestation and land use in general, um, it's, uh, it's always been a big issue. It's been moving quickly in the background for a very long time. Um, there's basically an agreement in place that would allow wealthy countries to uh, fund forest conservation efforts in, in developing countries. Um, that is expected to be part of the, the, the final agreement. Um, but here in Paris, it's mostly about you know some small text, um, some small references in the in the actual agreement. What they need to find out how to do is you know or what they need to produce is 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 commitments. Um, they need to put money on the table. So we've got a, a coalition, a small coalition of countries, put five billion on the table, led by Norway, Germany, and the United Kingdom. Um, that's not a small amount. That lasts through 2020. So it was a, it was a small shot in the arm, um, but it, it clearly won't be enough. So we still had a lot of advocates here in Paris um, trying to build momentum uh, for additional funding in the future. And there have been a few other inklings of interesting initiatives started even in these first two days of COP. Yeah, we've had one um, initiative, one of the big announcements yesterday uh, was a coalition of 20 countries, um, the United States, China, and uh, 18 others um, have all committed to double research and development funding for energy. Um, and that, was, uh, that came alongside um, another commitment from a set of major investors led by Bill Gates uh, to commit, in the end, $2 billion toward clean energy, te energy technologies. And the idea is that we need to generate the, the technologies that will allow the world to scale up clean energy um, and, and that has to happen in the lab. That's where the R&D funding comes in. But you also have to get those technologies out of the lab and into the marketplace. And that's where this uh, coalition of investors comes. So they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're going to try and help uh, small companies, professors, whoever it may be, 
get their technologies out of the lab, across the proverbial valley of death, and into the marketplace. A second announcement, led by India and France, involves uh, a new coalition of um, more than 100 countries, perhaps as many as 120 countries, uh, that, will, that will center on solar energy. And the idea is that uh, these countries might be able to share resources, they might be able to collaborate on research and help drive down solar energy in order to get it to a point where we can deploy it at massive scales to help poor people around the world at last gain access to electricity without driving up emissions. And there are two weeks left to go. Are there any hot topics we should be looking out for? Well, there are a lot of issues yet to be resolved. Um, as uh, one of the folks I talked to today said, finance, finance, finance. Everybody's trying to focus on, uh, on, on who pays and, uh, and how much, and how do we actually circulate that money. Um, it is going to cost money in the developing countries who would like to see more commitments out of the developed countries. So that's one. Um, there are issues out there with uh, something called loss and damage. You know, it's gotten to a point with climate change where we know there are going to be impacts that we can't adapt our way out of. You know, sea levels are going to rise. It's possible that uh, in time, islands are going to be submerged, no, long, no longer be inhabitable. So how do you compensate these people? Um, that very word is problematic. The wealthy countries don't want to see the word compensation in there. They don't want to compensate. Um, developing countries want to know what happens when their land is gone. You know, who, who's going to pay for this? So that's another issue. Um, and thirdly, uh, one of the big questions is, how do we scale this up? We know that coming out of Paris, it's not going to be enough to uh, get the world where it wants to go in order to uh, limit warming to two degrees. So there are going to be a lot of questions about who needs to do what in order to uh, bring emissions down further in the future. How does the agreement actually get structured in order to drive countries to do more? How soon do countries need to come back and, uh, and recommit to doing more? So those are the kinds of details that have yet to be worked out, and we'll have to see how it goes over the coming two weeks. Indeed we will, and Jeff and I are going to be here for the following almost two weeks, uh, continuing to report on this. For now, bye from Paris and bye from COP. I'm going to go and get some sleep. Thanks, Jeff and Noah, for keeping us all in the loop. We'll have more news coming out of the Paris Climate Talks over the next couple of weeks. And to get up to speed with what the negotiations are all about, make sure you check out our three explainer videos over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. They tell you all you need to know from the two degree target to the challenges of striking a global deal. And you can also head to parisclimatetalks2015.tumblr.com for all nature's coverage and analysis of the meetings. Thanks for listening. I'm Sharmini Bundel. And I'm Adam Levy. Levy.